Well, I think I could delete my whole introduction and conclusion to my sermon today because that song was just heard. Any doubt that you loved me was settled at the cross. That's pretty solid propositional truth. And all of us that know you both well know how much God's grace has done in your lives to help you embrace that truth with all that you've endured. And that's only God's power that allows you to stand up before all of us and worship like that. So we recognize that as God's grace. And uh, thank you for ministering to our hearts in that way uh, this morning. Take our Bibles back to the book of Job, and we're going to give you uh, a summary of chapters 15 through 37 today. Chapters 15 through 37. We walked our way through one of three cycles of debate between Job and his three friends last week. In chapters 3 through 14. Technically chapters 4 through 14. The next two cycles of debate are really chapters 15 through the early chapters of 30, 32, 33, and then there's a discourse given by one person named Elihu that we'll discuss this morning, and we'll understand why and how God allows this, this individual to have input into Job's story, and we'll come to some theological, some practical and then some very personal conclusions at the end of our time today in relationship to the whole Job saga, if you will. And then we're going to spend quite a few weeks on the final few chapters of Job, chapter 38 to the end of the book, some more powerful understanding of God and his purposes in our life. The great theologian Augustine was once walking along a beach perplexed by the incomprehensible truth of the Trinity. He had pondered hard for some time the reality of three persons dwelling in one essence and just became frustrated at the notion that his mind could not wrap itself around the mystery of a triune God. While walking, he came upon a little boy playing on the beach. He stopped for a bit and watched the little boy play in the sand he saw the boy take a seashell to the ocean, fill it with water, and then return to pour it into a small hole he had dug in the sand. Augustine asked the little boy, what are you doing, my little man? Oh, replied the boy, I'm trying to put the ocean into this hole. Augustine smiled and thought such a task is impossible for the greatest of men. Then it struck him. He was attempting to do the same thing. He realized he was standing on the shores of time trying to get the infinite things of God into his small, finite mind. And it wasn't possible. This was the reality of Job as he struggles through his horrific ordeal. 
While his friends wield accusation after similar accusation in his direction, Job seeks to press his mind and heart to know the wonders of the sovereignty of God. He believes it, yet it seems to be too wonderful for him to fully know. Yet as he struggles through the months of his God-ordained calamity, God's grace presses him to know and to take rest in the doctrine of God's sovereignty. As we pick up with cycles two and three of debate communication between Job and his friends, we find Job in affliction with his own mind. He has a complaint against God in chapters 23 and 24. He feels God has fled from him. The first 12 verses of chapter 23 explains. God frightens him. Chapter 23, verses 13 to 17. Chapter 24, verses 1 to 17 teaches us that God's also frustrated Job. He also believes God has failed him. As he's striving to understand all of God's ways, chapter 24, verses 18 to 25, he really believes God's kind of left him alone. Chapter 24 and verse 25, if you'll look with me there real quickly, he makes a statement, now if this is not so, who can prove me a liar? Now if this is not so, who can prove me a liar and make my speech worthless? While Job wrestles with the justice of God, the fairness of God as to why God's silent and not giving him an answer to the why of Job's agony, Job still presses forward though to understand the sovereignty of God. In chapter 25, Bildad begins to wax eloquent on the very subject Job is struggling with, God's sovereignty. Look with me in chapter 25, verses 2 and 3. Bildad says, Dominion and awe belong to God, belong to him who establishes peace in his heights. Is there any number to his troops? And upon whom? Does his light not rise? How then can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of a woman? One man said, Bildad's just simply saying, no one can measure God. No one can calculate his forces. No one can resist God, whether from heaven or from above or below earth no one escapes the reach of his dominion Bildad goes on to say the same of God's righteousness God's righteousness he says is unequaled he correctly states that God is sovereign and then he misapplies God's righteousness to Job's situation by telling Job God is all light and you're all dark, you are all darkness. In other words, Job, you are who you are, or who do you think you are, that you feel you can stand correct and righteous before a holy God. Job responds in chapter 26 with a clear statement on God's authority. God has complete authority over all the realm of the dead and reaches of heaven and even all positions under the earth 
and in his solar system. Look at chapter 26, verse 7. Chapter 26 and verse 7. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. He knows God has authority over the water and over its routines in chapter 26, verses 8 through 11. So again, we see Job, by God's grace, pressing to know and submit to God's sovereignty. In chapter 27, Job defends his innocence again by stating that God's justice is universally comprehensive. God's justice does deal with the wickedness of mankind, but God's not dealing treacherously with Job because of his own wickedness. As Job continues to press and find to finding peace under God's sovereign hand, he speaks one of the most classic passages on wisdom, the wisdom of God in all the Bible in chapter 28. Man can search for many treasures in the earth, verse 12 says, but where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Chapter 28 and verse 13, Job says, man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. Job knows ultimate wisdom belongs only with God, and he's beginning to learn something now, even from the silence of God. Job states God understands its way, and he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. And then he rightly concludes in verse 28, And to the man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Job gets it. He gets it. So Job concludes cycle three of his debate with his friends with a final word. When Job is done with this speech, he and his friends really have nothing left to say to each other. His words about the infinite wisdom of God have left his three friends now speechless, not having understanding or even wit to respond to the depths of what Job said about the wisdom of God. But Job's still pressing to understand and trust the sovereignty of God. And he steps back to look at the canvas of his life now. God and his sovereignty had truly painted a wonderful tapestry of Job's life. He begins with the beautiful, intricate strokes of God's divine fingers regarding his past. In chapter 29, what a glorious past Job had. He recounts his love, his relationship that he had with God. In verses 2 through 4, look with me. In chapter 29, verses 2 through 4, oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. As I was in the prime of my days, 
when the friendship of God was over my tent. Verses 5 and 6 tell us he deeply loved his family. What a rich family life he had. He even remembered the day when walking with God, he had the respect of his friends in verses 7 through 11. He wonderfully cared for the helpless ones in his life. Chapter 29, verses 12 to 17 teaches us. He thought there was a day where God had even secured his future. Verses 18 to 20. And then God had just took his future all away. Job remembers the notoriety that God allowed him to have in the region of the east at that time in verses 21 to 25. And after finding a moment of peace, remembering the sovereignty of God over his wonderful past, Job focuses on his present state of humiliation in chapter 30. Job's place in everything and among everyone is gone in the blink of an eye. And there's still no relief in sight. He's physically sick. There's no one to help him. The security of his future is all gone. Verses 24 to 31 teach us of chapter 30. In chapter 31, Job clearly states 12 virtues of his life that the Lord knows. From Job's marital fidelity in verse 1 to every facet of community integrity, he knows he's honored God. He's blamelessly lived his life. After Job speaks, chapter 29, 30, and these 12 virtues of his life in chapter 31, the whole debate stage grows silent. The three cycles of communication between Job and his friends are concluded. And Job just stands with his eyes wide open looking to heaven. Still trying to figure it out. So after a few hours of silence, someone else speaks. Thousands of pages have been written about our next speaker. His name is Elihu. Apparently, our next speaker has been listening in on all of the debate since Job began to speak in chapter 3. I was given a wonderful doctoral dissertation on each allusion Elihu repeats in his speech that we're going to look at here for a few minutes, referencing Job and his three friends' words of debate. Yes, he's been there the whole time intently listening. If you'd like a copy of that dissertation, I'll get permission to copy it for you. It indeed is a wonderful dissertation. It literally highlights every time Elihu speaks, every time he references what Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar spoke. And it just tells you he's been listening very, very carefully trying to get the big picture of Job's situation. What do we know about this man, Elihu? Well, he's the youngest 
among the five people present. In this day, if you were wise, when in the company of a discussion of men older than you, out of respect, you would speak last. So he's respectful. But in his youth, he does speak. And though he respectfully speaks last, he does so with a lot of youthful passion and a lot of people think some youthful arrogance. He's not just passionate. He's not just unsettled with what all he's heard. He's really angry. He's been waiting a long time. And we know how graceful youth is if it has to wait to speak. While he respectfully waits to speak, in his passion he is disrespectful. He does something the other three friends never did. He addresses Job's multiple times. He addresses Job multiple times by his first name. And this time also, it was a no-no. While he was respectful in being last to speak as the youngest, Elihu has something to say to Job, the person. And as the youngest among them, multiple times he calls Job by his first name. Elihu, in literary terms, is a character we would call a foil. Pastor Kent defined what a character foil is pretty well during his Palm Sunday service. Foil reflects. It either reflects the messaging of the bad guys or the good guys. The antagonists or the protagonist of a story. We find Elihu reflecting the character here of the one true hero of the book, of Job, and that's God. Though he's useful, youthfully passionate, he states some wonderful things about God and leaves Job silent with nothing to say at the end of Elihu's speech. You see, Elihu's message was different in that Job's friends thought he was suffering because of his sin, and Elihu felt Job was incorrectly handling his suffering. Elihu doesn't believe Job needs any space to question God or to doubt God's justice and fairness in relationship to how God's handled Job. During World War II, a young Jewish girl in the Warsaw ghetto of Poland managed to escape over the wall and hide in a cave. She died in that cave, unfortunately, shortly after the Allied army broke into the ghetto to liberate the prisoners. Before she died, she scratched on the wall some powerful words that sound a lot like a creed. She wrote this, I believe in the sun even when it's not shining. I believe in love, even when feeling it or not. And I believe in God when he's silent. Well, Job did too. But Elihu felt Job hadn't done the best job fully entrusting himself to his faithful creator 
So he's got some things to say about God, and he begs Job to listen. In chapter 32, Elihu just kind of arrogantly gives his defense on why he's just and having the right to speak into Job's life. He assures Job he speaks with a good heart in verses 3 and 4. Elihu dives right in and first incorrectly gives allusion to something Job never said. In verses 8 through 11, he tells Job, Now Job, you have claimed that you've never sinned or that you're sinless. Well, folks, we know that Job's never called himself sinless. At least five times in Job's speeches, he's referred to himself as a sinner. But in his youthful passion, Elihu says what he says. Nonetheless, Elihu begins to rebuke Job for questioning God. Elihu reminds Job that God speak, does speak when he seems to be silent. This is good for all of us to remember, friends. When we're deeply grieving, we should all remember God does speak when he's silent. He reminds us of beautiful theological and personal realities in Sunday morning special music songs. God speaks through the reminder of that which is doctrinally true that we know. God speaks, Elihu says, through that which is supernatural. That's chapter 33, verses 15 to 16. He goes on to say in verses 19 to 22 that God does speak even in a time of silent suffering. Elihu is attempting to get Job to listen to God in his time of affliction, even though God is not speaking audibly to him. Someone has said pain is God's megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Sometimes God speaks through pain. And often the deepest lessons we learn are learned through affliction. Elihu says that God has spoken through his condescension. I wish I had time to read all of the verses in Elihu's speech that reference God, and I even think some prophetic language here. God has reached down to man in so many wonderful ways job and if you would just lift up your eyes and you would look around you would again know that god's speaking in silence through his condescension if you write fast i'll just list these verses i don't often do this for those of you who are visiting but in chapter 33 verses 17 and 18 Chapter 33, verses 24 to 26, and 29 to 30. Chapter 34, verses 24 to 26, and verse 28. Chapter 36, verses 15, 28, and 31. Chapter 37, verses 12 and 13. Chapter 38, 
verses 25 to 27 and 39 to 41. In chapter 39, verses 1 to 4, these are all passages where the Spirit of God allows the author of the book of Proverbs to record for us where Elihu preaches to Job on how God speaks in silence through his condescension and that condescending value to God's people. Elihu saying, yes, Job, God has spoken. Are you listening? Chapters 34 and 35 are all about God's justice. Let's read chapter 34 and verse 5 of what Elihu says about God's justice. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my right. Job has questioned the justice of God, and Elihu is there to set the record straight that God's justice is immutable, it's unchanging, it's always right, even though unknown fully by man. He teaches if God is not just, then he cannot be good. He cannot govern well. And quite frankly, he cannot be God if he's unjust. Elihu reminds Job that God sees everything in chapter 34, verses 21 and 22. God knows everything and he judges everything and controls everything in chapter 34, verses 31 to 33. Chapter 35 is all about God's justice and how it can never be affected or influenced, changed by any effort of man in any way. Amen. It's final and complete in a universal way. Chapters 36 and 37 are entirely about the greatness of God. Job, God speaking in silence. Do you remember he's merciful, Job? Do you remember his might, Job? And in chapter 37 and verse 4, verses 14 to 24, Job, do you remember his majesty? Let's look at verses 22 to 24 of chapter 37 together. As Elihu wraps up his speech. Out of the north comes golden splendor. Around God is awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is exalted in power, and he will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear him. And he does not regard any who are wise of heart. Wise in their own way. So Elihu, though young, though youthfully impassioned and somewhat disrespectful, is God's foil. Everything he speaks about God is true. 
and it's right. And then when he's done, the only one left to talk is God. And that's what we'll look at the next few weeks together. But today I'd like to conclude with some theological and some practical and some very personal applications from all that we understand about these three cycles of debate and the Elihu speech. I will go slow enough so that you can all write these down or type them into your devices because I think these are necessary for me to understand these these conclusions have been very um, very good for me by way of reminder but also of um, reaffirmation of what I understand about God and my response to him my value of him above all else and I trust it will be the same for you I think we need to understand this first of all. True theological statements can be false if they're misapplied. True theological statements can be false if they're misapplied. And I say this very carefully. You can come close to killing, physically killing another believer if you say a right thing about God and apply it in a wrong circumstance. You've got to let God be God according to the context of who he is and what he says at the time he says it. When we get up to teach, when we get up to preach, those of you who are pastor teachers and teachers, when I think of that theological truism, I think of James chapter 3, where James warned the teachers of the Jerusalem church, don't strive to be a teacher. Don't strive to be a teacher. Be not many teachers. That's an imperative. Take great pain to fear getting up and speaking on the behalf of God or speaking God's words. Your, tire, your, your tongue can be set on fire, James says, of hell. And unfortunately, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Elihu, their tongues were set on fire of hell. And they came this close to finishing off Job. And they said a lot of right things. So we've got to be careful. I know you know that. I know you appreciate that. But I think of over your life and over my life, every time I have played the role of Eliphaz, Zophar, or Bildad. And you realize how many times you played that role only as you grow older in the Lord and you understand the word better 
and you figure out and you say, you know what, I'm going to preach this text again and I can never preach it today like I did 15 years ago. Because that's not what thus saith the Lord 15 years ago, ever. I've got to speak this in its context correctly and then I have to apply it correctly. Ignorance is not bliss in that regard. It's not joy for me to say, well, I was just a young preacher back then. It's not joy for any teacher to say, boy, I preached the right thing and applied it the wrong way, and I skinned one of my students alive in doing so. And they spent their whole life recovering from me trying to do the right thing the wrong way, which is still wrong. I could go application after application after application and probably another 10 weeks of sermons about the agony of saying the right thing at the wrong time and the wrong situation and applying it to the wrong situation and how it can devastate a life but maybe we'll have another seminar on that I don't know We've got to be correct Theological correctitude is essential in our teaching and our preaching and in our discipling. Especially in our teaching and our preaching. Theological correctitude is essential. Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar, they had that. But there's something they were missing. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? If you have all the gifts and you have all the knowledge and yet you have not love, you sound like what? They didn't have any love. What does love do? Love assumes faith. It assumes that faith is growing. And then it wants to have a relationship with that person to help them grow in Christ's likeness. Theological correctitude is essential, but my friends, greater than theological correctitude is love. Paul said there's faith, there's hope, there's love, and the greatest of these is what? Love. Love. We'll always remember, right? True theological statements can be false if they're misapplied and not only false, but they can emotionally destroy people. They can bring them to the point of not even wanting to breathe anymore. Theological truth number two, prosperity. Prosperity is not given out by God according to whether we're good or bad. We said that in propositional form last week at the beginning. All the good stuff we have, all the resources we have in our westernized world, we don't have those things because we're good and because we're godly. 
Bible says that God and his sovereign choice rains all goodness down upon both the wicked and the righteous. James chapter 1 says that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the creator, the father of lights. So God certainly is not blessing Job in the early parts of our story of Job because he's righteous and he certainly doesn't strip everything and everyone away from him because he's wicked. God is just, immutably so, and he's sovereign and he's good and he's right no matter what our circumstances So we should not be like the Messianic Jews of James chapter 2 in the church of Jerusalem who would give the nice seats to the wealthy and leave the poor seats at the back of the auditorium in the dirt for the poor. Certainly attached to this reality that Prosperity is not doled out by God according to whether we're good or bad. It's the impartiality of God. God is impartial. In salvation, he's impartial. It's offered to all. If you're here this morning and you know a lot about Jesus, or maybe you know a little bit about Jesus, I believe God has you here this morning to know as much about Jesus as you need to know or you can own him as your personal Lord and Savior and have peace in, in your heart and voids in your heart filled up by him Amen. for all of eternity and enjoy a relationship with him. He's impartial in salvation. He's also impartial in his justice. God brings judgment upon the ungodly, but he also brings discipline upon the godly who walk away from him. God's impartial. Theological truth number three, it's simple for all of us to understand and we, we leave the story of Job after Elihu's speech pursuing this even more. God reigns completely over the affairs of men. No one in the whole book, this is a wonderful theological truth or understanding of the whole book of Job. Not one speaker, not one character in the book of Job ever questions the sovereignty of God. All of them submit to it. And they find their way to peace in living under it. It's like 1 Peter 5. Where Paul told the elders of the diaspora, the pastors of the churches across Asia and Asia Minor, right? Humble yourself under God's mighty hand and he will exalt you in due time. No one questions that God reigns completely over the affairs of men in the whole book. Theological truth number four. That sovereign wisdom needs to be feared. It needs to be feared by me, by all of us. And that fear is then demonstrated in living righteously and obediently and holily unto Christ's likeness in our time. As one author said, Hold fast to God. 
Everyone in the story was doing that. And I would even say Job's wife, who told him to curse God and die. We already talked about what Job thought about his wife and the integrity that she had. She was a godly woman. Had a weak moment. But everyone in the story is doing everything that they can to hold fast to their understanding of who God was and therefore the person of God fighting their way to do 1 Peter 4.19 to entrust themselves to a faithful creator while they tried to continue to do good things. What can we learn from Job's growth? What can we learn from Job's growth? In chapter 3, we find him in utter dismay. Go to some practical things now. We see him worsened by wanting death and the grave to become his immediate reality in chapter 7 to 9. To his response to Bildad in chapter 10, verses 20 to 22. Let's read there real quick. Flip back to chapter 10. We're going to go quickly now. As we look at how Job's spiritual health gets healthier how it grows. We find him miserable in chapter 3, wanting to die in chapter 7 to 9. Chapter 10, verses 20 to 22. Would he not let my few days alone? Withdraw me from that, that I have little cheer. Before I go, I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow. The land of utter gloom is darkness itself, of deep shadow without order, and which shines as the darkness to his response to Zophar in chapter 14 and verse 14 go with me there if you would as we continue to learn Job's growth from agony to a heightened level of peace as he strives to understand the sovereignty of God we see the encouragement begin to come here as he debates with his friends over the reality of who God is and how God speaks even if times are silent. If man dies, will he live again? All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my what? Until my change comes. God's doing something in the heart of Job in the middle of the cycles of debate. He goes from agony now to wanting to die now to I think there might be life even after I die, if I die, and I want to die. This is resurrection language, folks. And he's one of the earliest writers, if not the earliest writer of Scripture. There's something of understanding here that God gives him by way of hope, feeds him just enough to keep him coming out of this despair that he's been in enduring for months as Job continues to battle the poor theology applied by his friends his strength gets greater look at chapter 19 and verses 25 to 27 you'll recognize these words as for me I know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand on the earth oh my goodness is this a prophecy of the millennial kingdom to come that he knows nothing of? 
even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, from my resurrected body, after death, I'm going to see God. Folks, in all of Job's realizations and growth and understanding of the sovereignty of God, his circumstances remain unchanged. Think about that. Ponder that just for a minute. As he's growing, his circumstances remain unchanged. Folks, how wonderfully encouraging is that for us? that God gives us the slack to struggle pretty intensely, to even want to die. But to know that God never leaves us alone. There's one that sticks closer than a brother, and he is going to sit there and weep with you, mourn with you, be patient with you, allow you to see all the ways that he speaks, even though he's silent, that we've already reviewed, because he knows, he knows the work of grace that he's done in your heart will compel you to pursue great and precious promises and to own them. And it could take months, it could take years. But God's overseeing the journey and he's supplying the energy, if you will, along the whole way. What are some practical things we can learn as we conclude this morning? Sometimes, yes, God does seem silent. But friends, sometimes you see silent. we seem silent because we're not listening to what he's already said. Friends, look. If you're struggling, we have this volume that Job didn't have. Study it. If you're in the greatest agony, the best place to go is before the Lord and His Word, and not your spouse, not your children, not a church member first. Sometimes God seems silent because we're not listening to what He's already said. Look at Job chapter 23 and verse 12. Job is He's growing from agony to peaceful understanding even though his circumstances remain unchanged. What does he say about the word of God that's known to him at that time? I have not departed from the command of his lips, God's lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Study the book. I can remember my wife went through a horrible trial at her Christian school while she was growing up and she recounts after that trial she went home with no one to talk to no one to cry to no one to scream out to except God and she opened up her Bible she said and as a sophomore in high school she just spent the whole night not sleeping reading the whole book of Psalms If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek with all of your heart. Amen. Praise God for that. 
let's make sure as we struggle and we hear, we don't feel that we hear God speaking. Let's make sure that we're listening to what he's already said. God's word is sufficient. Let's not be just faithful hearers, James 1.25, but faithful doers so that we can be blessed in his deed. And verse 22, go over to chapter, excuse me, number two. Let's go over to chapter 23 as we close. So many other practical things we'll go through in the concluding messages on this book, but let's finish with just two really hands and feet applications. In relationship to God's silence again, when God is silent, please remember this. When God is silent, Job knows that God knows. Amen. When God is silent, Job knows that God knows. God knows what? Let's take one of these verses now that's been um, unfortunately, horrifically misapplied, right? And hopefully not wounding to some of you, as we said before. I'm assuming it's not too wounding because you're here. But let's understand it within its context. A very familiar text in Job chapter 23 and verse 10. But God knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. We, we even sing a hymn. But the truth of that text. Job's not being, he, he's not explaining here what James 1 says. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials and temptations, and if you endure, you'll persevere, you'll grow, right? Become that complete believer. He's not talking about um, God being the great divine re refiner or forger. What's he saying here? When God tests me, he knows I'm righteous. That's what he's saying. My enemies are attacking me with good theology misapplied, which is destroying me, telling me that I'm suffering because of my sin. And Job's saying, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm righteous. God can test me. And as sure as this testing is certain, the righteousness that I have in him is certain. Amen. I'm a child of God. Amen. Don't try to tell me I'm not or I'm suffering because of my sin. Test me, God. I'm going to come out and my faith is going to prove to everyone that I'm faithfully yours. God's silent. Job knows. God knows. Job knows. God knows the condition of your heart in relationship to your conversion, your salvation experience, your status in the child of God, your status as a child of God in his family. So, my friends, listen. Satan really loves the target security when you're in agony he tries to undo everything about the reality of your safety in christ when you are enduring life's most horrible 
calamities. He lives and breathes to make you feel like you're untethered to the dock of security in a horrific storm. And Job says, nope, never been untethered. No matter what he sends my way, I'm gold. I'm golden. <laughs> because of who he's been made in Christ. So if you're agonizing, if you're struggling, if you're feeling insecure, understandable. By faith, God knows you're golden. And by his grace, he's going to gradually grow you from agony to thinking about future victory. In my flesh, I'm going to see God. I'm going to see God with every family member that knows Jesus that's gone on before me. Amen. I'm going to see God in the flesh with the children that have died that have gone on before me. Amen. We're going to all stand together as gold because we've been golden in Christ Jesus on the day of our resurrection and allow that hope and that certainty to bring continual, gradual restoration of your brokenness to a lot more confidence in God and how he righteously and justly oversees the ordeal of our calamity. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we know that there's much more to say about this book, much more that you have to say about this book through us in the weeks ahead. For today, Lord, we thank you for allowing us to be ear witnesses of how your grace developed Job Every single one of us in this room, to some degree, can place, our, can place our feet in Job's shoes. None of us have lost all that he did, but all of us have lost some of what he did. And each loss brings its own unique, special pain. A pain that only you as our creator are familiar with to the extent that you endure the greatest pain and the affliction of the cross for our sin. But a pain which you can only minister to by the unique comfort that you offer the time of our unique pain. Help us, O oh Lord, to strive to know and to hear what you've already said in your word to comfort our hearts. Help us, Lord, to know as Job did that 
that you know. Help us all that know the Lord Jesus Christ to have been ravaged by doubt and insecurity and fear and anguish. It leads to more doubt and to more hurt for those of us that might even be on the verge of hurt becoming lifelong bitterness. Because hurt unministered to can give way to bitterness. If, Lord, we're on the threshold of hurt to bitterness, help us. Help us, O God, in this hour to understand enough about you from your word. Continue to heal from the hurt. Help us to take the very words of this lengthy book that are true about you. Help us by your grace to be pressed to understand them, to know them, to apply them, that we might know increasing joy until we see you. And then as a body, Lord, help us to always understand that each member of the body is as essential as another member of the body. If one weeps, we all weep. Help us, Lord, to wisely love, but to love indeed. Help us, Lord, to enjoy the ministry of the Spirit of God within us and then among us to rightly divide the word of truth that it might be a balm in Gilead when we speak it to souls who are hurting. Lord, give us grace as we've enjoyed your mercy as we minister your word to each other in a timely way. in our affliction. This is a holy matter. The time of our infliction might grow greater. As the affliction among us and around us grows greater, I pray, Lord, that we would follow the testimony of Job and continue to strive to know and to love our God and then do so together in his name we pray